Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and 12 through 13. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, who also swear by Moloch, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is as the Garden of Eden. Behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A nice cheery passage to get our, our Sunday off right. Also well done, Allison, on all those names. Well, well done. So today we start again, uh, today's first Sunday of Lent. Uh, if you aren't aware, again, Lent is a, it's a season that maybe some of you have um, uh, practiced in, pa- in the past. Maybe it's new to many of you. Uh, but Lent, again, is much like the Advent season, is a season of preparation. You know, Advent, we prepare for the birth of Jesus. Uh, during Lent, we prepare for the death of Jesus. Uh, the season is an intentional way to focus, again, on repentance and reflection, Mortality, sin, brokenness, and really, ultimately, reflecting on our need for a Savior. And so, again, just, I want to encourage you to use this season well, uh, because the more we remember our need for a Savior, the more that one day, when we, you know, in several weeks, when we get to Good Friday, when we get to Easter, the sweeter those days are when we reflect deeply on our need for Jesus, our Savior. And with that in mind... We're going, over the, going to, over the, the next several weeks, be starting a special Lent series called The Day of the Lord. And over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the minor prophets of the Old Testament, specifically looking at what many of them called the Day of the Lord. 
And each week, we're going to consider the broad themes of each of the prophets who prophesied against God's people in Israel as a result of their injustice and unrighteousness. And through them, through these prophets, I hope that we take a real good look, a deep reflective look at our own unfaithfulness, our own injustices, our own unrighteousness, our own rebellion. Now, as a quick side note, I will also say that we will not, in this series, we will not be looking at Obadiah and Nahum, um, as their prophecies are primarily uh, for other nations, not Israel. And I say that just so that I've said it out loud in case there's any sticklers, uh, that omission was intentional. But what we want to see is what does God have to say to his people through these prophets? And today what we're going to do is look at two prophets, two themes within two of these prophets, the prophets of Zephaniah and Joel, specifically to consider what they have to say about the day of the Lord. So let's consider the day of the Lord in this way. Let's take a look at a day that came, a day that's coming, and a day that's here. Okay? A day that came, a day that's coming, and a day that's here. First, a day that came. Let me uh, just begin by giving you some context on the minor prophets. There are 12 different minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, uh, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Thank you. Actually, you want to know the trick? Years ago, I, uh, I made up a song in my head about the prophets, and it still sticks. Um, so those are the minor prophets. The major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, the reason for the distinction is an important distinction, right? Here it is. The difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets is that the major prophets are long, the minor prophets are short. That's it. That is the only distinction. The message of the minor prophets is not minor at all. Uh, in fact, there have been many sermon series out there entitled The Major Message of the Minor Prophets. Uh, I was really tempted to go that direction, but I decided not to. I thought I'd go with something a little bit more confronting, like the day of the Lord. But I note this because we need to take seriously what the minor prophets have to say. And one of the unifying themes that you do see throughout all of the prophets, but particularly the minor prophets, is this notion of the day of the Lord. So that's kind of the context. The second thing, uh, context-wise, that we need to consider is that these biblical texts that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks, they are prophecy, but they are prophecy in a particular context to a particular group of people. The words that we heard read today were from uh, or for a particular people in a particular time. And so we need to consider that context, right? We need to consider who the prophets are actually speaking to, who they're decrying, if we're going to have a better understanding of how any of this applies to us today. So who were they speaking to? What was going on at this time? Well, the minor prophets were, they were all prophesying to either Israel or Judah. Uh, by this time in history that we just heard read, uh, the single nation of Israel had been divided into two uh, nations. Israel was in the north. Judah was in the south. Each nation ended up with its own history. Uh, and with that history came a series of different kings. Some of those kings were righteous. Some of them were wicked. Most of them, many of them were, were wicked. And so as a result of the wickedness of these nations, uh, sin had become so pervasive as a result of idolatry and injustice that these prophets now came along. Both the minor prophets and the major prophets came 
to present to the people, to remind the people, to confront the people about God's deep disdain for the idolatry and injustice that was pervasive in the land. And time and time again, what you're going to see all throughout Israel's history is that as a result of idolatry, meaning their unwillingness to worship Yahweh as the one true God, Israel and Judah constantly sought other gods. And as a result of seeking those other gods, they became a wicked and unjust people. Uh, look at our passage in uh, Zephaniah in verse 4. It says this, that I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs and worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the name of the Lord and who also swear to Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. A few things to note. First, it's important to note that they are still worshiping Baal. Baal was the, the supreme god of the, the pagan people in Canaan. And if you remember, Israel is essentially Canaan. God gave Israel this land as a judgment against the injustices and the brutality of the Canaanites. And even though Israel knew of God's judgment against Canaan, Israel still worshipped the gods of Canaan. And even more interesting, they attempted to interweave their worship of Yahweh with these false gods. And they had been doing that for centuries. If you remember, when God led his people out of captivity in Egypt, in Exodus 20, we see the famous golden calf story. And if you read that story, they weren't just worshiping a golden calf. What they were doing in Exodus 20 was attempting to worship Yahweh through the golden calf. This is what you call syncretism. It's this desire to worship the true God by worshiping false gods. It was always part of Israel's story. But the second thing that's worth noticing there is in verse number five. It says that those who bow down on the rooftops to the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Moloch. Again, just to note, there's a syncretism that's happening there. There's a weaving together of worship to Yahweh and a worship of Moloch. But who is Moloch? Moloch is another god of that region at the time. And worship of Moloch is most known for two things. There was sexual rituals, and there was probably even more egregious, the sacrifice of infants. This is what Moloch was known for. And I don't want to be graphic, and so I won't be graphic, but many babies died by fire as a result of worship to Moloch. Parents would sacrifice their children, and they would do so for financial prosperity and the hope of future children. And to God, it has and always will be an abomination when innocent blood is spilled, especially that of children, when their sacrifice was for the purposes, especially of supposed benefits like financial security or the, the parent's future. So, whether in ancient, in ancient pagan age or in 2022, God's justice will always stand on the side of the most vulnerable, the most innocent, the most defenseless. But here we have God's people swearing by the name of Moloch. Now, their rebellion, their wickedness, as one might expect, angered God. Because God is merciful, though. He sent these prophets to confront them in their wickedness. And he told them, listen, 
The day of the Lord is coming, and that day is going to be a day of judgment. If you do not turn away from your wickedness, you will experience ruin. Look at uh, Joel's words in, um, what verse is this? Uh, sorry, in the verse 13, he says, return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he, he re relents from sending calamity. Joel is saying, God doesn't want to bring calamity upon you, and he has been slow in his anger, but if you do not turn back from him, you will experience that calamity. And as you may know, the story of Israel and Judah is ultimately one of them not turning back to God. And so what we see is that the day of the Lord comes. And as a result, they are conquered and they are led into exile as a result of their wickedness. God's purpose in doing so was to bring justice and righteousness back to the land where his people had perverted such things. He desired to cleanse the land of the evil that had existed now within Israel. And so God allows them to be destroyed as a result of their wickedness and their idolatry. So, in one sense, the day of the Lord came. It happened at an actual point in history for Israel and Judah. But the prophecies about the day of the Lord were not solely just for Israel and Judah at that time. Because we also need to consider another facet of the day of the Lord. We need to consider that that day not only came, but it is also coming. Let's look at that. Uh, in the Bible, the day of the Lord is seen as both uh, a present day, something that's happened, but also a day that's to come. So in some Old Testament passages like Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 30, and in our passage here in Joel 1 and Zephaniah 1, uh, they refer to the day of the Lord as historic judgments. Sorry, so we've seen this. It's how Israel is judged uh, on the day of the Lord through their exile. But in the Old Testament, we also see places like Joel 2 and Zechariah 14 and Malachi 4, where it speaks of divine judgments that will come at the end of time, one day in the future. Now, this is a, a theological concept that many describe as the already not yet. You may have heard, heard me talk about that before, but it's essentially a way of describing how God acts in particular ways now, while also fulfilling some of those promises that he gives to us now into the future. And so there tends to be this immediate in-history kind of thing that happens while also something that, that is to come into the future. So for example, for Christians, the New Testament tells us that we are saved and that we are healed and that we're redeemed and that we're sanctified and that we're holy. Tells us that those things are already true for the Christian. But we also know that we have not experienced the fullness of that yet. We know that there is still salvation to come when Jesus returns. We know that there's still healing to come. We have not been fully healed. We know that we are not holy people. We know that there is still much sin, much brokenness that's within us. In us. Even though those things are true of us because Jesus has accomplished them already, we also know that they have not yet fully come, right? This is the already, not yet. And the day of the Lord is the same. The day of the Lord came to Israel. Judgment happened, but it has also not yet fully happened for God's people. And we see this, again, all throughout the Old Testament, but we also see this in the New Testament. 
in places like Revelation 16 and 2 Thessalonians 2, it speaks of that coming day. It will be a day of judgment for those who reject God, but it will also be a day of salvation for those who are faithful to him. It will be a a day of sorrow for those who seek after other gods and allow injustice, but a day of rejoicing for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And one of the most visceral images of that coming day is found in Revelation 19, a passage that I have referenced many times. It's so striking to me, as many of you may know. I had the images of Revelation 19 tattooed down my arm on a half sleeve to remind me constantly of that coming day. Let me read for you the day of the Lord that is to come. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. This is the, uh, the Apostle John writing about this. He said, I saw heaven standing open, And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are blazing like fire, and and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A couple of things. First and foremost, Jesus has written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So it's good to know that Jesus is pro-tattoo, just making that note. (laughs) Second thing to notice here, this image of Christ's return is supposed to drum up a measure of fear in us. I mean, how does one read that passage and not have this sense of fear of this coming warrior king? I mean, much like God would restore Israel by cleansing it of the unrighteousness, all the injustice, all the idolatry, in the restoration of all things, there will also be a cleansing of the cosmos. Jesus being at the center of that cleansing, where he will, re- he will remove sin's stain on all creations. This is what happens when Christ returns. As I read through this, and this is a little bit of a side note, but it's an important one, I did begin to think and wonder, when we think about Jesus, what are the images that come to mind for us? I have found that over the years, people tend to have one of two images of Jesus in front of them. So one of the, one of the uh, ways people can lean is some will primarily see him as gentle and sweet and kind and approachable. You know, a man with children on his lap or lepers in his embrace or widows at his feet. Some others, though, might think about Jesus and think about him flipping tables. See him, his eyes blazing like fire. To see him as a warrior king, the one who brings the wrath of God against injustice. And so when we look at those two kinds of pictures, which one of those is the real Jesus? Well, my friends, they're both very much the real Jesus. And when we lose sight 
of one or the other, we begin to miss the full character of God. You know, Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when we look upon Jesus, when we look at the different ways that the scriptures describe Jesus, when we look at Jesus, what we're seeing is we're seeing the character and the nature of God. And the scriptures show us both a gentle, approachable Savior and also a terrifying, powerful King who brings wrath against injustice. And if we see Jesus as a warrior king bringing the wrath of God, but we forget about his gentleness, there's a couple of consequences to that. We tend to be either filled with dread and a very unhealthy fear of God because all we see is Jesus angry, or we become people who are harsh, aggressive, and lack compassion. If we primarily see Jesus as a warrior king, we need to be reminded of his gentleness. But if you primarily see Jesus as gentle, as sweet, as approachable, we tend to lose sight of his awesome power, his matchless strength. And we will tend to not take seriously his kingship over us. We, will not, we tend to not take seriously obedience and submission to him as king. Or we cease to trust that he is just and that he will defeat injustice and sin. There are consequences for not holding intention a Jesus who is gentle and approachable while also powerful and terrifying. And I bring this up because when we're talking about the day of the Lord, some may not have context for understanding God's judgment and wrath against idolatry and injustice. But you cannot read the scriptures, and you especially cannot read about the day that is coming without seeing that God will bring judgment and wrath against idolatry, against injustice. Because if we only have that gentle picture of Jesus in mind, we're going to really struggle to even know what to do with Revelation 19. You know, we, we hear about the wrath of God, and it does tend to conjure up pictures for some of this arbitrary God who's seeking to smite people, but that's not the kind of judgment that we see. It's not the kind of wrath that we see, because when, when God's wrath becomes known, what you begin to realize is that wrath is justified. That wrath is a response to the injustice, the unrighteousness that exists within the world. It's, it's a response to the ways that we have, as a result of our sin, perverted his good creation by rejecting his righteousness and holiness and justice. And a God who allows such things to persist is actually not a loving God. We want a God of justice, a God who allows things like injustice to continue and is apathetic to, to it. That's not a God worth worshiping. He's not worthy of any praise. And so what we see here is a God who takes very seriously the sin and the brokenness that exists within his creation. But here's the main takeaway. I started today by noting that our experience of the day of the Lord, this is important, our experience of the day of the Lord is going to be very dependent on our relationship to the Lord of that day. Jesus is compassionate. He's a gentle savior, but he's also a fierce judge. So on that coming day of the Lord, will we experience 
joy. For our Savior has come. Or will we experience sorrow in the presence of this fierce warrior judge? For Israel, when their day of the Lord came, because of their ongoing rebellion, it was a day of sorrow. For they found themselves under God's judgment for us. It doesn't have to be that way. For us, we have the testimony of the scriptures. We have prophets calling us to remember what it means to trust in the Lord, to turn back to the, to the Lord, because we don't have to fear that coming day. And the reason why we don't have to fear it is because there is hope. If we possess a particular kind of trust in the Lord of that coming day, And so finally, what I want to show us is that if our hope is rooted in a day that's here, not a day that came, not a day that's coming, but a day that's here, we can look forward to the day that's coming as one of joy. Let me explain to you what I mean. The day that's here. Uh, The Lord of the day, uh, or sorry, the day of the Lord, it will be a day when the Lord's purposes will be fulfilled. Right? That day will be one of judgment against idolatry, which is the rejection of God as God and injustice, which is our willingness to undermine God's good intention for his creation. It is a day, in the words of Revelation 19, when Jesus will come and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. But this is not all the Bible has to say about the wrath of God. Remember, God's wrath is a necessary response to the pervasiveness of sin and injustice and idolatry that's in the world, rebellion that pervades his creation, the sin both in us and around us, a God who looks upon evil in this world and is not angered by by it, again, is not a God worth worshiping. So how does one ensure that the coming day of wrath is one of joy and not sorrow? Well, the Apostle Paul he makes the wrath of God actually one of the central themes of the book of Romans. And in the first chapter, he says this. If you want to throw that up, uh, guys. Verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is being revealed again, uh, from heaven against all, the, against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So as a result of the rejection of God, the suppression of his truth, of wickedness, as a result, those who do not trust in him are subject to wrath. We are like Israel and we will experience that coming day with sorrow. But that's not all that Paul has to say on the subject. I mean, remember what, what Joel told us. Joel told us to return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. And Paul, of course, draws on that idea. And later on in chapter 5, he shows us the ways that God is gracious, the ways that he is compassionate and loving toward us. Paul says this in chapter 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In several weeks, 
on Good Friday. We're going to remember the cross of Christ. And it's at the cross of Christ where we see the love of God who does not desire to pour out his wrath on those who have not trusted him. He desires to not send that calamity. And it's on the cross where Christ experiences willingly taking on the wrath of God, poured out on him, that we might not experience that wrath because Jesus takes it upon himself. He lays his life down that our lives might be raised up. He drinks from the cup of wrath so that we might drink from the cup of gladness. He transforms the day of the Lord from sorrow to a day of rejoicing. The death and subsequent resurrection of Jesus is part of that day of the Lord that is here now. We have the opportunity to experience the effects and the impact of what Jesus accomplished. Though it happened 2,000 years ago, the benefits of what Jesus did are for us now. And they will remain with us until one day Christ's return. Trusting in Jesus as our Savior, the one who takes our place, assures us that we have nothing to fear when the day of the Lord comes. And so the question, of course, is, is Jesus that gentle Savior for you? Or right now, is he that warrior king coming with judgment? Let me leave you with this. I said that uh, Lent is the season leading up to Good Friday and, and Easter. It's a season of reflection and repentance. And the reason I find this season valuable is because the more we realize the depth of our sin and our rebellion against God, again, the sweeter the celebration of Good Friday and Easter are. Because what is accomplished on those two days is for us as we trust in Jesus. So my friends, use this season well. Where have we allowed idolatry to exist within us? Where have we allowed injustice to persist? Where do we need to repent? Where do we need to have, again, that fuller picture of Jesus? Do we see him as both that warrior king and that compassionate, gentle savior? I pray that this Lent season provides us opportunity to see him in his fullest and to trust him in his fullest so that we can have confidence to know we have nothing to fear when that day of the Lord comes. And may this season be an opportunity for us to be reminded of these truths. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that though we, uh, we are sinful, idolatrous, though we are much like the people of Israel who chase after other things, other gods, though that is true of us, you are a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love, who relents from bringing calamity. And the way you have proven that love is in Jesus. For in Jesus, he comes and he willingly lays down his life for his people. He willingly takes upon himself the wrath that we deserve on that day. He takes it upon himself in order that we might possess what only he rightfully possesses, which is true righteousness, true holiness. We thank you for what Jesus accomplishes for us. And Lord, for those of us here 
who have never trusted in Jesus as Savior. Lord, I pray that even now your spirit would be at work. Draw them to yourself, that they might experience that coming day with joy and not sorrow. For those of us here who maybe trust in Jesus, but have at times forgotten the fullness of who he is, remind us anew of our Savior, the fullness of who he is, that we might be a people who trust in him fully and rightly, that we might have confidence that we are his. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.